When artist Alicia Wormsley coined the phrase, there are black people in the future, she must have seen who was coming our way. On today's show, we sit down with new author Kosoko Jackson to speak about his debut novel, Yesterday is History, a story about being young, black, and queer based in the world of sci-fi. Jackson speaks with us about how he came to write this book, the screen time this novel rightly deserves, and the importance of representation of racial minorities in sci-fi. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. And this is another episode of Vulgar Jeans' podcast. So don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And tonight we have a very special guest. Yes, we are joined with our February YA um, Book of the Month author, Kosoko Jackson. We are so happy to have you here. Um, good evening. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I mean, it's very cold in the New York metro area, and we're getting more snow, so I'm not excited about that, but I'm super happy to be here. Well, we hope that we keep this uh, conversation, keep you warm and toasty. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, we're going to go ahead and just start you off in the hot seat. We're going to ask you five um, rapid-fire questions. So, All right. To, I'm ready. To, to kind of warm, warm us up. So, very quickly, um, we have... Our first question, the best show to binge watch right now. I didn't even like answer that quickly. The Crown. Oh, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> okay, good answer. Good answer. Uh, next question, Good Snow Day book. You should see me in a crown by Leah Johnson. All right, we're oh. keeping up with that that crown, that crown <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, next question is reading funk recommendations. Sort of like get you out of your reading funk. Yes. yes. Any type of graphic novel. I'm reading Bloom right now, mm-hmm. which is just like a really, really good, like very quick, very like positive black graphic novel to read. That's like easy and great and fun. It's my bath time read. Nice. Who's the the author of that one? I don't know off the top of my head. It's not in my room with me, and I let somebody else borrow it, so I do not know. But I can definitely find and send it to you guys. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, best TV villain. Mmm. These are rapid fire. I'm supposed to be answering these quickly. Um, <laughs> no, you take your time. <laughs> I watch a lot of TV, so I'm like, who is my favorite TV villain? Um, I, I don't remember her name, but she is the woman on the new Snowpiercer TV show. Cannot remember. She's portrayed by Jennifer Connelly. Cannot remember her character's name, but she's like a great multifaceted villain because you understand like her motivations and why she's doing it to protect the people of Snowpiercer, but not like the people in the back of the train. It's my favorite. I would die for her. Do you like the Do you like the TV show better than the movie? I love the TV show better than. I mean, I love the movie. Like even with Chris Evans eating a baby, I still <laughs> love the movie. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and favorite album of all time. Oh, that's easy. Halsey's Badlands, specifically the one performed live at Webster Hall. Oh, very very specific. All right. We like it. <laughs> He's been waiting for that question. Yes. (laughs) All right. So um, we're going to just go ahead and dive right on into this interview. Um, We want to know straight off the bat, what was the inspiration behind the concept of your novel? Sure. So I wrote Yesterday's History. I started writing it about two and a half years ago. And I was in New York for Book Expo, which was every summer and doesn't exist anymore. So rest in peace. But I was walking around New York and I went to Stonewall to visit it for the very first time. And I was like, this is a great piece of like LGBT history. And I was just like loving the concept of it and loving the idea of like gay revolution, how it kicked off in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to expand on that in a book that focuses on like a young black queer boy, but I wanted to focus on how 
LGBT issues in the past and the present have changed drastically in positive ways, mm -hmm. but are also very, very similar. Like when some aspects we haven't really moved that much for forward. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it with letters because we have seen in literature that there's always a story in adult fiction about some woman who finds like her ancestors' letters in the <laughs> like attic, and then we bounce back in narrative time. I was like, that's been overdone. Let's do something weird and different. And I love science fiction, obviously, by my love of Snowpiercer. Exactly. And so I was like, let's find a way to make science fiction. So I emailed my agent. I was in the first draft. Um, he had got his ability to time travel from a, a blood donation, but that mm -hmm. wasn't like personal enough to me. So in the edits, we came up with organ donation. Yes. And the book is now alive. Yes. I am a nurse by trade. So, okay. and I, use, I work in surgery. So I was like, come on, transplant. Because <laughs> I was living for it and I love sci fi. And I'm like, we got to read this book. <laughs> we got to read it. Well, I hope this, the transplant logic and everything passes your test. Yes, it did. That's, okay, that's why I'm like, you know what? Because some others, you'd be like, mm, even TV shows, you're like, what? What are they doing? Right. But, but here was like, this is believable. Come on, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> it has checked all the boxes. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so um, why was the title Yesterday is History? So the original title was called Act Up in reference to like the um, the AIDS movement. Um, mm -hmm. But my editor was like, this book has nothing to do with HIV, so we did change it. <laughs> I was like, right, but I would listen to a lot of Rent while I was writing this book. And she was like, it still has nothing to do with HIV. We need to change it so go instantly. Mm -hmm. um, and it just became Yesterday's History because like for me and my editor, I've worked with her now for a while. And how we work together is we just mm -hmm. both throw a bunch of titles into an email. And we start to click them off. And she liked Yesterday's History because it refers to the quote, yesterday's history, tomorrow is uncertain, the present, tomorrow's a gift. And so she was like, it helps to make people think about that and the idea that the past is like part of who you are, but mm -hmm. it's not always, it doesn't have to always be the concrete reason of who you are as a person. It's your foundation, but it's not going to completely establish everything about you. And she thought that was a really good segue into like the themes of the book that Andre goes through, mm -hmm. understanding his past with Blake, understanding the past with Michael and how the past is in many ways malleable. And she thought it was great for that. You did such a, uh, a wonderful job like setting that to be the foundation in which he would bounce off to find him himself throughout the the novel and i feel like even though we get to a certain point you can still see that you know he needs to continue to look for who he is as a person but you know he's young he's a teenager mm -hmm. he right. wouldn't he wouldn't automatically know at that point i'm 40 almost 42 i still don't <laughs> automatically know so but to have that to be the set of understanding that your past does help put you in motion to where you need to go um, but you ultimately choose what you're going to do with your future. Exactly. So, um, with this being a novel that deals with time travel, why did you why did you choose the time period of 1969, and what are the significance of the other time periods that you had him bounce into, like 1912 and so on? Sure. So I think 1959, obviously, because like the Stonewall movement started and kicked off the LGBT movement. And so as Andre being gay, I really wanted to focus on that. The very first draft of yesterday's history had a lot bigger of a Stonewall element, but it wasn't strong enough to keep it in the book. So then we were doing more versions and more edits. I realized that we also have the civil rights movement in the 1960s leading into the 1970s. And Andre goes a little bit to the 1970s. So I really wanted to focus on the two identities of Andre, his LGBT self, his gay self, and his black self, and have that represented inside the book. Um, and going back to the 1912 and the Titanic was, Titanic's one of my favorite movies, and I watch it often. There was also some more deleted scenes of him actually like on the Titanic, where my editor was like, this doesn't add to the book at all. I'm like, right, but it's cool. And she's like, okay, but it doesn't add to the story. Please delete it. Stop fighting with me on every single thing that I ask you to delete and change. Uh, but I'm very like personal and close to this book, and so there are some deleted chapters of Andre on the Titanic. Were there any, any scenes that you had to cut that you are just really sad that you had to let go outside of the Titanic one? So no. So the good thing about that is I am a, usually when I send it to my editor, I'm a pretty clean drafter. And so my scenes might change, maybe like a location or they, so certain things might change inside of it, but the core of the scene changes. I would say the biggest scene that I had to fight for was there's a chapter, I think it's a 
in the first third where Andre is discussing the phenotypes and genotypes of red colored hair. Mm. And my editor was like, teens are not going to care about this. Why are you having Punnett squares inside of your book? And I was like, as a science major, like my degree is in public health. I was like, and I was going to be a doctor just like Andre. I hated Punnett squares, hated them with the burning passion. So I wanted to include it. My mom's a science teacher. So she was like, you see what I taught you stuck with you. And I was like, you gave me an F on this project. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of like an F you to that. (laughs) I was was about those Punnett squares. Just so I'm like, ooh, we're discussing about hair types. Okay, (laughs) I'm here for this. Um, So the rules of time traveling that you created um, for Andre to follow, um, was that the template of the story? Um, so, you know, was that like the first thing that you kind of thought about or wrote about? So we kind of keep on on Andre's track. Or... Yeah. So I when I started writing, I was like, I want to do time travel. I realized I read other time travel fiction. I watched mm-hmm. other time travel movies. And I was like, the biggest thing is that the rules often to me are very bendable whenever the character wants them to be, or mm-hmm. we can do X, Y, Z, but like sometimes you can do X if you do it like carefully. And so I wanted the rules to be firm enough and simple enough to follow that it made logical sense that you shouldn't erode on them, but not so restrictive that the story would feel like it could only go down one path. Mm. So, and I wanted them to be relatable to the audience. The reason why we don't have a lot of YA science fiction is because editors don't believe that teens want to have heavy amounts of sci-fi explanation inside their books. And it's a big like hurdle that a sci-fi office would get over. Mm. So making it so you can't jump to the future, you can't piggyback jump from point A to point B, and you can't change things in the past are very simple rules to establish that teens mm. through other literature understand and give us a framework for world building without it feeling like we're talking about what type of screw is put on a spaceship to help it sustain yes. like zero geography. Yeah, and I appreciate you going to like sci-fi because ever since I was young, I really gravitated towards that. Um, I like science, science fiction, mysteries, and stuff like that. So I'm like, this is really nice because I'm also um, a little bit older than you by a tad. <laughs> um, but you know, it was it was really nice. Like if kids would have this the story, like if I had this story when I was a kid. I'd be like so stoked. I probably was so happy. So oh. thank you for doing that for the generations to come. Because we need, well, thank you. We we need to see more stories like this. Yes, because like because sure. like time traveling is kind of like you know it's everybody's dream yeah. to to go in between time and space continuum. So to be able to see like a queer black boy do that is is dope. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. So I have a question. A burning question (laughs) that I was hoping would have resolved itself, but it it never did. Why didn't Andre tell his best friend, Isabel, what superpower he had just just gotten? Like, why not tell that secret? That's a secret that I would have told to my best friend. Like, why did he not do that? He couldn't tell his parents? No. Okay, so help us out. Okay, so... This is the biggest critique that I've gotten from every reader is that Isabel does not have enough time on the page. I, don't, and... I, I didn't care. I did. <laughs> I did. We talked about this. I did. She didn't and need to be throughout the book, but still at least have, you know, known. But okay. That's fair. That's fair. In the earlier drafts, I will say she had a lot more of a role. There was a lot more of an element of Isabel, and I regret taking that out. So for anybody who listens to this who has dinged me for that, I hear you and I see you. But, but it's not Isabel's story. That's, it's not Isabel. This yes. is just Andre's story. I understand. It's his time to come to age with his sexuality and who he loves. And Isabel is a very strong presence in his life who is going to ride or die for him. And he needs to go on this journey by himself without having Isabel influence it. That's why I told oh, you. Goodness. Like, he needs, he needs to be in his head. He needs to do it by himself. Yes. Like... But, you know, still. Or maybe I just have no friends. I have no <laughs> friends to share it with. You know what? That earlier draft, just, you have my email. Send it to me. And it will it'll touch the heart that needs it. <laughs> <laughs> so how did these characters come about? How did you dream them up? You know, I have a lot of people, when we talk about, you know, where did these characters come from? They're just like, they just spoke to me. Is it the same <laughs> thing for you? or Or how did they come about for you? So partially. So Andre is a big like version of myself. Like I said, I was going to go into, I was going to be an infectious disease doctor. 
Um, I was going to get my MD PhD. That was my original goal. And so when I wanted to, and I did not do that. Um, and so when I was writing a character, I was like, what's a teen character that you will relate to? Someone who's struggling in senior year. With, are they going to follow their dreams that they told their parents when they were six? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to try and go off on their own path? It really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. So Andre in many ways is elements of myself, but also elements of myself that I wish I had like more stronger characteristics of. He's very comfortable with his sexuality. Mm-hmm. He's very comfortable with his intelligence and the space that he takes in the room, which I was not when I was a teenager. Um, Blake and Michael are kind of two sides of the coin of like boys that I like. So we have the very much more artistic, free-loving, shaggy hair boy who <laughs> has a little bad boy vibe to him. And then we have the incredibly wealthy athletic boy type in the modern day, very yuppie east coast style and those are like for my weakness those are the two different type of boys that i simp for it's a problem especially like simping for these white boys is a big problem as a black queer person i know this it's something that i have to get over but i do and so i wanted to create those two sides to make it feel more real for me when i was writing Mm -hmm. and then honestly because like my favorite character in the whole book is blake's mother um blake's mother to me is basically just if you took addison montgomery from Grey's anatomy and put her into every single book that i write that's basically it she, that would be perfect. She is Addison. Yes. Oh. You see oh. it now. Now I'm like, like poof, my mind yeah. is blown. <laughs> I can hear the heels. <laughs> yeah. She's Addison Montgomery as a time traveling lawyer. And like that's basically what I wanted. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> so um what is it that you want your readers to understand about grief and letting go? Um, you know, that they might have the desire for them to like hold on to something and they're they are unable to like let go of the past. Yes, yeah, so I think the biggest thing is that when I wrote this book, I wanted teens especially and young adults to read this to understand that grief not only affects you, but how you handle your grief affects everybody around you. It has a ripple effect. And grief is a shared experience. It's not a singular experience. Yeah. And so that theme of every single character grieving something, the McIntyre is grieving David. Um, Michael grieving his parents who like don't accept him anymore. Andre mm-hmm. grieving the, like his old life of his old self and the mm-hmm. accomplishments that he had worked so hard to get that are now basically have a risk of not happening. It's just an example of different facets of grief and how different people interpret grief and function it and utilize it affects who you are as a person. And it affects everybody around you in ways that you would not expect because of the choices that Blake's mother makes without making it a spoiler we have this whole story that sets into into play which affects Andre's life. Because of the choices that Michael makes, Andre's life is affected. Because of Andre's choice of wanting to fix everybody and fix things to have some control, yes. other people's lives are affected in positive and negative states. And so grief can be a very negative edge of a sword, but can also be very positive because it brought all these people together. Yeah, and I think it's very empowering. Like, if you use grief... And that power of like letting go and accepting, I think as a person, I think Andre um, learned a lot and he has matured enough after a war- afterwards, like from the very beginning till the end. So I um, hope he has. He, he did. <laughs> he, did. <laughs> he did. And also like, um, you know, if we're, this book dealt a lot with like love and different forms of love. So, um as an adult reading this, I'm like, oh, is this your way of like letting the young, the youngins, the young people know that maybe, just maybe in their lifetime, there's just more than one true love? Yeah, so I go back and forth about the whole like idea of soulmates. Yes. I read a lot and like watch a lot of science fiction and fantasy. So like I love that idea from a fantastical point of view. But I think people can have multiple soulmates. And I think that people don't always end up with their soulmates. And I think that is okay. Mm. Yes. I think that we as a society think that one true love and like finding your perfect love is like the pinnacle idea of love Mm -hmm. but people offer you different things and you are in different points in your life where you can give and receive because love is a two-way street and sometimes when you find that person it's not at the time when you can receive it or when you can give it and so when you're at that time to receive or give maybe it's not with the person who you align with a hundred percent someone would align with 90 percent but it doesn't make the relationship any less important so i think it's important that teens see because i think there's it's a good point to have books where the person meets their love in senior year of college, high school and they end up together happily ever after. I don't think every book needs to be that because we mm-hmm. have so many books out there and it's important for teens to see different lessons. Despite there being an entire chapter dedicated to the closure 
with Andre and Michael, um, you had Claire to go and create this photo album, right? Um, was that a way of letting Andre know that Michael was okay and that he shouldn't be tempted to try to jump one 100%. more time? 100%. It was a way to resolve his relationship with Michael in a way where he can move on because Andre is not somebody who would move on, which is also why we have that very strong limitation that if you continue to time travel, you're going to literally rip your body apart because he is somebody who would continue on that path because for teens, right or wrong, because you're a teenager, love is like the pinnacle thing on your mind. Yes. It's because you're at that age, your body you. is developing. Exactly. And so maybe in 15 years he'll realize wow like i was kind of a stupid teenager but at that moment michael was the representation of everything he wanted to be and everything that he was looking for in a person and to actually be able to find that and the only limitation is this limitation that other people are putting on you is not something that andre would accept hmm. that those were the two things that made me like ugh, like made my heart <laughs> ache in that book is when Andre was saying goodbye to Michael, and then when the when the photo album came, I'm like, why do we gotta do this again? Why do I, why do I have to feel all the feelings again? Yes. So. What was the point? The point of a writer is to make you feel feelings. Yes, you did, a, you did it. Because I was like, oh, oh, the book, all the pictures. Yeah, everyone tells me when they talk about that that chapter is the one that broke them, oh. and I'm like, really? The first because I had been writing this for so long, like two and a half years, that. Um, when somebody told me the first time, I was like, that last chapter is not that sad. And so I reread it again to my mom on the phone, and she was like, because I said, this is the saddest chapter I've ever written a book. Aww. And I was like, y'all are just weak. That's what it is, obviously. <laughs> no. But it's, it's me no. who has read this so many times and written this that <laughs> it doesn't hit the same. But it's a good chapter. It's a pretty good chapter. Fine, you can call me weak. <laughs> I accept the weakness. <laughs> How do you see Andre in the future? I see Andre as probably a professor. That's my idea. He goes into professorship. He definitely majors in history, history or psychology, maybe both, does not get a doctorate, but he becomes a history professor and he focuses on like the near American histories and also focuses on Native American history because I feel like Andre has seen the world in a new light and understands mm. the importance and the effect that people have on each other in a positive and negative way. There's a big theme of privilege throughout the book and him mm -hmm. commenting on a lot of white privilege. And I feel like he would really use that to his advantage. He isn't part, he's not like an official, official time traveler anymore, yeah. but um, Blake's mother would indoctrinate him into the society of time travelers mm -hmm. and allow him to have all those benefits and to talk about the time travelers. And he would definitely use that to his advantage to help educate the true history of America through people and through his students. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you touched on the white privilege part because one part of the book that stood out to me a lot was when he was talking about how passion, to have a passion is yes. something that is basically, you know, for white people to have. And it's not something that black middle pe middle class people can, you know, think about as a, as a thing that they can, you know, mm -hmm. do on their time off from their regular nine to five. Um, why was that so important for you to have that in the novel for for teenagers to get? Specifically because of two reasons. When I wanted to start writing, my parents were not gun ho about it in the very beginning. Um, like I said, I was going to be a doctor. That's a very specific path, a dream path for parents. I wanted to switch to English in college, and they, my mother was driving me home during um, winter break, told her I wanted to be an English major. She veered off the side of the road and was like, you will not be an English major. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, but now she's super supportive. Like after, like, basically my mother is very much, love her dearly, but she's very much a person who's like, she needs to be proven that you can do something before she supports it because she doesn't want people to waste their time. So mm -hmm. when I proved I was like a good writer, she's like, oh, totally supportive of me. Edits my work in the very beginning, bounces my plots off, etc. But I'm also in an MFA program and my MFA program is incredibly white. It is 60 people of staff, I mean, of, of students, about 18 faculty members. And out of all of those, only three of us are Black, and two of us are additional people of color. And so I really have been thinking about a lot how an MFA program that costs me $45,000 with is something that, frankly, people of generational wealth 
can go into because an MFA is a degree that does not guarantee any type of financial elevation like other degrees do. It's a terminal degree that you do to write a book. You're frankly just doing it because I want to write a book. And who has the time and the money to be able to add $45,000 of student loan debt? It's generally white people. And these privileges and these experiences that people can take that allow them to have hobbies and passions are generally people who from the dawn of time or since the dawn of humanity have had this privilege given to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it was really important to touch on that in kids. And also every single character that I always write especially if they're a black main character, which would be 99% of my books, will always talk on white privilege because publishing and the books that we read are just so white. Yes. I, te- I totally agree on, yeah. on all fronts. Yeah, because, like, speaking of passion, I'm Asian. So we don't have the luxury, like, to, like, almost kind of dream. Because yeah. dreams are, are irrelevant. You have to have this line of, like, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer, it's very specific um, professions that as a teenage, like as a child, you have no idea why they want you to be that. And you just kind of like, oh, brainwash yourself. Like, oh, this is what I need to be to make my parents happy. But you never think about yourself because like they're always like, oh, we don't have the money to do that. That won't really give you money when you're an adult. And why put us in all these debt? So I think it's exactly. a, it's important for like, you know, these types of books to emerge because like kids need to see and maybe also parents of these kids need to see like if you made it maybe my child can do it too and you know i think um going back to what you said about the publishing the publishing companies like um you said that in in an interview i think with a guardian like last june you like spoke about the importance of like tilting like the metrics of publishing Mm -hmm. in favor of you know black writers despite of being there a lot of notable black queer writers like such as Kaysen, Leah Johnson, Dean Atta um and now you're laying down your your brick down on this pathway um and you're helping to make a difference um what would you say to like readers and the publishing company how can they maybe more proactive in getting more black writers um published and read i think the major thing that publishers need to do is that they need to start bringing black especially black black and queer would be great but especially black people into the boardroom and into these meetings publishing meetings um and acquisitions especially in editing is incredibly white um lee and Lowe publishes every year basically a statistic Mm -hmm. and a study of publishing i can't remember what the statistics are for this year but they're always abysmal and i can think about in ya right now i think we have maybe three black editors and acquiring editors and why and why so when we're talking about stories that aren't the typical story that focuses on pain and suffering in gentrified communities which we know publishing loves to buy because it, it profits off black pain who do we have championing us in the room when we just have black joy mm-hmm. there's not enough people because mm-hmm. white people will say i can't relate to this which mm-hmm. relatability always means this as a white person does not relate to my experience of how black people are perceived And so that is a big problem. And if we cannot have those champions in the room, we don't get the right advances. We don't get the right marketing support, which then repeats the pattern when we go through looking at our numbers. Oh, this type of book didn't profit, but a book about a slave on the run and all the horrible, horrific experiences that he has does profit because white people love to read those stories. And it repeats the cycle over and over again. So I would say to publishing, you need to hire and pay more black, right? More black people to be in the room and for writers there's no other way to say it besides being black and queer as a writer is hard it's very hard but that doesn't make it any less worth it i had a friend an acquaintance online who reached out to me and said and sent me a picture of the book with their son then she captured it by saying my son is black and queer and he opened the book i brought it to her for him as a surprise and the first thing he said is this character looks like me mm-hmm. and that was the biggest compliment I've ever heard in my life. Because like, that's why I write these books. I, of course, write to make money. I want to be the next Stephanie Myers. Of course, who doesn't? But I also <laughs> write because it's very important. As I grew up when I was Black and when I was a little kid, I never saw books that looked like me. I never mm-hmm. saw Black queer boys in the star of books. And if I did, they were always stories about homophobia or growing up in the ghetto. And those were the only two stories that we could have which is why Andre's family is very well off and fairly Mm. upper middle class, while Andre is a bomb-ass student. And I will always write characters, unless the story needs it, who are at the top of society and who are leaving white people in the dust. Yes. What's the most difficult part of the publishing process? 
Like, how many hands did your manuscript have to go through until someone was like, yes, let's do it, let's let's print this? Um, I would say actually the hardest part of the publishing process is always getting an agent. Um, so I queried about 200 query letters, which were, weren't all to different agents. They were just 200 total query letters before I got an offer, before I got an offer. And that's just the biggest slog. Like, it's just one of those things that when people complain about publishing, like you just got to get through it. If you want to get published, if you want to be traditionally published, which is a choice in and of itself, and there's nothing wrong with being self-published. So if that's your path you want to take, I fully encourage that because it's in many ways, some parts are easier, but some parts are also harder because of like marketing. I think the hardest part once you get past the door and you get um, a publishing deal is reminding and working with editors who are white to understand the black experience of your book. Mm. Um, I am very lucky. My, ed- my editor, Annie Berger, senior editor at Sourcebooks Fire, has been incredibly good about just like asking me questions and not taking away the blackness of the book. Mm. But it is still hard when you're querying many different editors to pick the right ones who understand like the point of the story and don't want to change it to just have it be your run-of-the-mill white adventure story because you can easily whitewash any story. Any story can be whitewashed in very delicate ways. You can have a white, a black character who reads very white, which makes it more relatable to white people. Mm-hmm. And even that has a level of commentary about when white people are like, oh, you sound so white. There's can even be a level of commentary about that, but not mm-hmm. all editors want that. Um, I was very lucky that I already had a relationship with Annie, so she took the book directly from me. And so it was a very, very lucky experience my adult rom-com which comes out in 2022 from from penguin random house um that was also a lucky experience i only subbed to five editors and one took it two months later i have been very fortunate in my editing process so i'm lucky well congratulations to you thank you congratulations to us the readers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you're lucky. 2022, I have three books coming out. As of right now, we're oh, fingers yeah. crossed for a fourth one. We'll see. But congratulations, booked and busy, baby, booked <laughs> and busy, and busy. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's that's really awesome news. <laughs> what was the feeling when you did get that yes? When they said, "Okay, we're gonna," what was that like when they told you, "Okay, let's go." I didn't cry because I don't cry very often, but I definitely did like have to sit on my bed and like call my boyfriend and call my mother and just call everybody around me because it's it's been like a many years. I started deciding that I wanted to write to be published in 2013, mm-hmm. but I've been writing since I was six years old. Like my first story that I wrote was when I was six years old. It was about a boy and his friend who went camping and it started to rain. And so they went inside of a cave to stay dry and a bear ate them. Um, very tragic. They died. Um, and I used to write it and I would write each chapter in between while my parents were watching Wheel of Fortune. And then I would read the chapters on the commercial break to them. And I just remember ending it. My mother was like, are they dead? And I was like, yes, the bear ate them. And she was like, we need to have a talk about the stuff that you're consuming. If you're six years old and writing about bears being eaten by children, I'm looking back, I'm like, they probably deserved it. Why were they in the first place? Do you still have that story? I don't have that story anymore. I know, but I, but I do drastically remember it. it. had colored illustrations. I remember that, too. Of them it getting a, eaten, too? No, just inside the cave. And I remember it had sound bubbles that were like, ah! Because <laughs> I wasn't going to actually write children being killed. Though, if I redid it now, it would be a whole chapter of bloody graphic bone crunching because that's the best stuff to write. Oh, (laughs) man. Wouldn't it be something to go back and rewrite all of the stories that you thought of as a kid? (laughs) Oh, that would be a nice Sometimes, but sometimes it's not because like I said, yesterday went through a lot of drafts and there was a version of yesterday where a black woman who was in her 90s who, in parentheses, I did put like rest in peace, would be portrayed by Cicely Tyson is living in an attic and I'm like, why is there a black woman living in an attic surrounded by trees? And like, what is this? Who is this character, Katsoko? Who what was is she? she doing? She was someone that they knew in the 70s. And I was like, oh, this is a mess. And why is she in an attic? That was the biggest question that I had. So no one ever will see that version. Ever. Who is she? What is she? Basically, who is she? Who is she? Her name changed from the character that she was supposed to be. So I'm like... Did she was she on the run? Is she running from the FBI? Did she change her? I had a lot of questions from past me. 
<laughs> maybe maybe she wasn't wasn't for that book. Maybe she's for something else. Yeah. I'll find her in something, but she won't be in an attic. She'll be living like in a penthouse at like the W or something. Yes, but, there yes. we go. Cool. Let Let's give her a house. <laughs> <laughs> at least a house. That's all we could ask for. <laughs> oh goodness. So, which authors have influenced you the the most throughout your your life up until now? I would definitely say Alex London, who is a, um, a queer science fiction author. Um, Alex and I have a very, very close relationship. He was the first author in 2012. I was like reading science fiction books. Proxy was one of his favorite books of mine. One of my favorite books of his. Found his email, typed him an email in 2012 and said, I want to be a queer author. How do I do it? And since then, we've been talking and friends and he's doing my Wednesday launch party. And so it is just a great experience. Um, Leah Johnson also, because Leah has had like such a great like journey and we've been mm-hmm. friends even before she got her book deal and just to see like her trajectory. Um, it's just been such a great experience. And then outside of that middle grade author is DJ McHale, who wrote the pin dragon series or is a mm-hmm. huge inspiration of mine and has always been. And then also Jonathan Stroud, who wrote the Bartimaeus trilogy was mm-hmm. my all time favorite fantasy series. And those two series are the ones when I was a middle schooler, I was like, maybe I can write books and then didn't realize <laughs> how hard books were to write. <laughs> So are you going to be expanding this genre of, like, Black queer sci-fi? Please say yes. Yes. So my second book, my second book by Source Book, which comes out either February or March, I am hoping for February because Black History Month, is called All Kingdoms Must Fall, and it follows a teen journalist who ventures into Baltimore after a Black, during a Black Lives Matter protest, and Baltimore decides, because the riots are so much, to enact literally an impenetrable dome around Baltimore where no information or no physicality can leave and get out, and so he teams up with a Latinx hacker to take down the dome from the inside out and in a world where the police have these incredibly like iron man mechanized suits to basically wreak havoc on poc communities and these two teens because teens and young people are what lead revolution throughout history mm-hmm. lead a revolution against the baltimore police it is a very black lives matter Ooh. very a cab book and i am a little worried about how the public is going to take that but i was i wrote it in response to george floyd Woo! i I would read it. I can't wait. My 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 sister and her family live in in Baltimore, so just to have a story about Baltimore is awesome in itself. But to have it to be this this way, I can't wait to read that one. Thank you. It's I'm from Maryland, so I was like, let's not let's set it in Baltimore. <laughs> nice, nice. That is, that is a cool. That's a very cool idea. Thank you very much. And I and then I have another book on sub that I cannot talk about, but it also is queer sci-fi fantasy yay all right so i i have something what something that i have noticed um throughout the the past interviews that we've had and just like watching people do interviews like on on live is that what i'm seeing a lot of black writers who when you're when they're talking about um books that they are excited about Mm -hmm. they're always talking about you know people should read this person, this person. And majority of the time, it's a black person. And it feels as if it is somewhat of a literary green book guide for black writers and black mm-hmm. readers. Uh, because I think if it isn't for people calling out those folks saying, this is who you should read, most of the time, it would just be quiet. We wouldn't, we mm-hmm. wouldn't know, right? Yep. And then the same way when we interviewed with Disha and she was telling us like writers that we should be looking for, she named Mateo Askerpour. And then we we didn't know who he was, and we yes. immediately went and we watched a a live with him, and the first name that he dropped was yours. What's you. And so for <laughs> us, it was kind of like we have to, you know. Really? Yes. yes. That's how we found out about you, honey. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm friends with Mateo, so it's like great. Like I followed him when he like got his book deal for Black Buck, and then I just kind of stalked him on the internet um, completely, and I was just like, <laughs> "Yo, like we should be friends." And then I started liking his Instagram, and then replying to his Instagram, and then eventually followed me back. And then it, it's been—it's one of my greatest achievements on online <laughs> becoming friends with Mateo. <laughs> Uh, that's so nice. I'll have to text him after this. 
Well, you know, like, it, I, it, I guess it's not really a question, but more so of a comment of, like, this is what I'm noticing uh, with anybody yes. who is going, especially now. Like, we are calling these people out. This is who you need to know and how important that is because what I've seen in the past is that those names would not have normally been called out. Or you have, like, you know, our generation of of writer canons like these are the people mm-hmm. like the tiny he see coats and so on and so forth but to be able to get to know like the ya writers such as you or the new up and coming it is a, a tremendous thing so um to move on to our next question what advice would you have to give to young people who aspire to become a writer a lot of people would say write a lot and read a lot and i think that's good advice but i think it's like not the best advice because I think everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest thing, and this is also cliche advice, you hear a lot, write the book that you wanted to read as a teenager. And that's easier said than done because books need to make money. And so I kind of get annoyed when like New York Times bestsellers with who have been on the list for several weeks are like, this is the book that I wrote because it was the book of my heart. And there are more people who write the book of their heart that do not get a book deal than people who write the book of the heart that do. Mm -hmm. So my advice would be write the book of your heart when you're writing it and edit it from a business point of view because publishing at its core is a business. And I think mm-hmm. what happens is people forget when you get your book deal or when you're editing for a book deal, you are editing for the market. And there are choices that you have to make that you have to concede on and that you have to fight for. I try when I'm working with an editor or my agent that for every one, every three to five choices that I uh, concede on, that I will keep one choice mm-hmm. for myself and no matter what happens. For yesterday, it was the genotypes and phenotypes inside the book. Yay! Uh, it's a win for me! Which is funny because because <laughs> no one has mentioned it. I fought so hard for that part of the book. Um, but I, I try to remember, you have to remember that you write for yourself and you edit for the audience because publishing is itself a business that drives across making money. And I think the mm-hmm. quicker that authors learn that, the quicker you can reconcile those two things in your mind, that mm-hmm. you can write stories that appeal to you emotionally, but still coming from a business point of view. Some of my favorite stories that I've written or drafted will never see the light of day from, or won't for 10 or 20 years because they're not marketable. Some of the stories that I didn't love in the beginning, I've grown to love, and I wrote them originally from the market because I was able to find a part of myself inside the story. I don't think careers are long, careers are long and you're not going to love every book a hundred percent but you have to find something about every book that you want to love about it more authors than not will burn fast and burn hot and disappear Mm. if that's what you want to be because we can be many people in our lives Mm. that's a hundred percent okay but if you want to be a long-term writer who has 10 15 book careers you have to find that piece in every book that you love and understand that that might not be the majority of why you're writing the book I, I I love that honesty that you impart to these teenagers because sometimes, you know, when we think about such careers, nobody would really tell you, like, what is it really to go through it? And I appreciate yeah. you telling, you know, telling our, our young listeners that this is, this is how it's done and this is how you're supposed to think because I think it would help them to kind of, like, prepare themselves if this, this is really what they want to do. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Like, writing is hard. It's it's fun. It's rewarding. There's nothing more fun for me than coming up with a new world and starting to write it. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that you're going to... That does not mean that writing a book for several months and then getting your edit, your agent's notes back after 200 pages to say, I don't think this is the right book. You have to find a way to take a moment to cry that out or dance that out and then start another book. And mm. for me, I start a lot of books, so I don't have a huge amount of emotional investment in one book because I can... I'm very business-minded so for me this is a career that allows me to take my passion and make money from it and I'm very lucky to do that but you have to find a way to keep going because Mm -hmm. those hits can be a lot there is nothing more discouraging than when someone or an organization publishes a list that is like here are all, all the POC science fiction books coming out in 2021 published in December and they're like this is an exhaustive list that we spent months writing and your book's not on it and not at all speaking from experience but like how do you have a 470 list book and my book is not on there you'll get those a hundred times for every list you're on you won't be on three others and you just you just have to remember to keep going and that these careers are long and you will always have ups and you will always have downs that is easier said than done and the sad thing is that there is no way that anybody can prepare you 
for that until you mm. actually go through it. Who do you want these characters? Because we know. We feel it. It's going to be a it. show. It's going to be a Duh. TV show, a movie. Like, who would you want these characters to be played by? <laughs> this is the question that I've gotten before, and I never prepare it fully. <laughs> All right, let me see if I can do this. So, <laughs> Andre would be Chance Perdamo from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, who plays Ambrose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and if anybody from netflix watches this i am vying very hard online at least once a month to write an ip project of, Cha- of ambrose so if there's anybody mm-hmm. who watches netflix please get at me because i want to do this so badly <laughs> uh, uh blake would be jacob eldori from the kissing booth and also from euphoria oh, oh. yeah <laughs> euphoria was so good yes 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 um michael this is not the best fan casting, but it's because I love this man. Would probably be a blonde Noah Centineo, um, just because oh. uh, from from all the boys I loved before to all the boys I loved. Oh before. yes, 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 <laughs> yes. That is it. Yes, um, <laughs> we, all, we we love some Jenny Han. <laughs> yes, yes, and then um, Blake's mom would probably have to be Kate Walsh from Grey's yes. Anatomy, but mm-hmm. I'd also go with Julianne Moore. It was a balance between the two when I was writing it. Um, but I, it depends on what age they wanted her to be. I could go with either one. I really could see Julianne Moore. I mean, she already has the red hair for it, so it's right. perfect. But I see her just like how you described her holding the book when he first meets mm-hmm. her and goes into the room. Like, yes, that's that's Julianne Moore. If it was Julianne Moore, I would fly to the set and probably just start crying. That's all. I would just be <laughs> tears running about my face. Like, Dear Alice, where she plays a woman who has Alzheimer's, yes. who's going through, is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. It, I sobbed in the movie theater. I don't usually cry in movie theaters, and I... It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I I read that book too because my grandmother has Alzheimer's. It's a beautiful book. So, it's an absolutely beautiful book. So when I I'm like, why am I why am I reading this? Why am right, I right? Why are you watching? putting yourself through that? <laughs> it's cathartic. That's what I like to do. I love that you love television and and film so much. Cause I watch I, too much TV. I, and and there can never be such a thing, you know, coming from someone who watches too much TV. <laughs> Because we we love to read, but out of the both of us, it I'm the one who loves television. So right. I always try to trick her into like, <laughs> let's watch this movie. <laughs> let's watch this movie and review it on the podcast because I just right. really want to watch the movie. <laughs> and um, I give in. It's fine. So we really hope that this gets made into something so that we can be able to review it. Uh, on fingers the crossed. Show. Yeah, I watch a lot of... Before the pandemic, I used to go to the movies. And so I probably watched about... 85 to 100 movies a year in theaters before the pandemic um so i have shifted that to obsessively watching tv whenever i can um what what do you think this is just off the wall question but like what do you think about like the golden globe nominations with everything that came out last year and then what we were given so there's a lot of sides to that coin i feel like i feel like we got less TV this year than we should have than we would have gotten in other years because mm-hmm. of like stuff that had to stop in the middle. That being said, there were still iconic TV shows that were dropped off. Like mm-hmm. I May Destroy You was one of the best shows just about people and about how we hurt others and how ourselves get hurt ever. And to have that be snubbed, listen, I am a social media manager in my real life. I hate watched Emily in Paris that turned into love watching it because it's like enjoyable and it was simple and it was easy it didn't deserve the nominations over i may destroy you like i love lily collins it's nothing to do with her as an actress this show was not on the same tier and i just think the golden globes used the excuse of oh we didn't have much great tv this year as an excuse to go back to the same type of nominations that we get i think that from female nominations of Actresses, if I remember, it was like eight, like sixty white women and two women of color this year. That's a shame. Absolutely horrible. That's a shame. I may destroy you is one of those shows that just flipped how to tell a story on its head. And that last episode, I... Michaela Cole is a gift. She is a gift. A legend. She yes. is the moment. Yes, she is. Um. So our last question. Well, oh wait, we had a reader question. Yes. A reader question. A reader okay, question. They wanted to know, 
seeing if, you know, like if you were able to time travel yourself, Mm -hmm. what would pain your heart to see undone if you were unable to correct it in the past? Mm, That's a good one. Barack Obama's um, presidency. Yeah, I could definitely see me making a choice because all of my things, usually the question I get is, when would you like to travel to? And so like, Mm. I'm... I work in poli- adjunct to politics, so I've done a lot of things like that. And so a lot of the choices are either observing political or important historical moments or changing political and historical moments. And I think about often how in those political moments, without us even knowing it, a lot of those choices with POCs and Barack Obama seeing how the world was just a mess is what got him into politics. And I'm always afraid that one of those choices would make him go down a different path directly or indirectly. And that makes me terrified of how our world will be different. Even though we had Trump, Trump was a response to Obama. We probably would not have had Trump if we had Obama, Mm -hmm. which also makes me think that if we had on the flip side, if we didn't have George Bush and had gotten Al Gore, we wouldn't have gotten Obama because that was a, a reflection, a reaction to having George Bush there's a lot of different politics and screwing with politics can mess up so many things on the national playing field. But I yes. think if I came into a world where there was no, if I came back to a world knowing about President Barack Obama and then there wasn't President Barack Obama, I would be a mess. Yeah, that that Same. would be something. That would definitely be something. Also, another another reader's question. Um, we are, they they already have assumed. We already know that you are writing this as a TV show because, <laughs> duh. Um, how would you expand this time travel universe? Listen, everybody's like, this could make a great TV show. This could make a great movie. Listen, I'm trying. I'm trying my best to get this in front of the right people. Come on, we're speaking so, into existence. Speaking it, speaking truth to power. There you go. How would I expand it? Two ways. One, I would either make um, David have a couple chapters in the book so we could understand David's path. Really yes. wanted to have some David chapters. Like if we can get a novella of David chapters. That'd be great. Um, there was a scene where David, when he goes back in time to stop David's um, dying, there was a scene where he was going to talk to David. That was pulled from the book. And I know you asked, what scene do you miss the most? That was pulled from the book. And I think that's actually the scene. Um, it just didn't work because we changed it for the other chapter of uh, the re- revelation that you have from Blake's mother. Mm-hmm. And that was the exchange, which is stronger. Mm-hmm. But also, I've always wanted to write, when I was writing this, a prequel where Blake's mother is young and a teenager because she's from the upper echelon of time traveling, like families and how she navigated time travel and who she is as a person now because of it. Always wanted to write that. And so I would like to have that expanded or as you can see, I have a lot of thoughts. We have like, we're here for it. (laughs) We have this like concept. that's like in the distance that like, there is basically a elected cabinet of time travelers who maintain things. I would like to like dive into the politics of time traveling more. If 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 Blake's mother made this choice to give Andre the liver to give him the ability to time travel, I feel like somebody would have been like, "Um, Miss Thing, what are you doing? This is basically human experimentation. Please report to England and the next flight, and then have her be a badass and defend herself in a Sorkin-esque monologue that I would, of course, write, and it would be great, and it would win all the awards, and whoever was playing... Blake's mother would get a Best Supporting Actress or Best Guest Actress Award. I would get Best Screenwriting Award. Then I would move to Hollywood, start writing all these great films, write movies that Jordan Peele would produce, and then it's great. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that will. That's the plan, and we're sticking that's to it. That's the trajectory it. <laughs> that I've thought through significantly, as you can see. And then we would be like, we we were there. He said it yeah. out. Here's, here the, it yeah, is. We got to run me. the tape. <laughs> So we ask everybody at the end of the of the show, we want to know what are your top five books. But we had someone to switch it up and we're going to go with that. So instead of asking the top five, we want to know who are you excited about their books dropping soon? But can can I ask one thing, though? Two <laughs> things. It's, it's for me. It's really sure. for me. Who is your favorite hero's character? 
Claire Bennett. Yeah. Claire Bennett is my absolute favorite Heroes character. Save the I cheerleader, have save so the world. so many X-Men-esque things. If I can ever write a cellular generation-esque character as a book, I need to write a whole book of that. I'm going to email my agent out of this. Like, we have to talk about writing what you want to love and what you want to see. Cellular regeneration is the best X-Men ability that ever existed. The fact that you can just do normal things. Why do we not have a cellular regeneration character who makes money by going to boxing rings, letting people beat the shit Woo! out of them so they're exhausted, letting their healing keep them on the edge, and then go ham afterward? You can collect all the money. I have yeah. so many thoughts. You could be an assassin. You could do car wrecks and just get... I have so many thoughts. So many thoughts about this ability. Did you, re did you watch the reboot? <sighs> I did. It was depressing i tried the very first episode i tried i tried and i'm like no I it don't. wasn't it it wasn't it for this me is not it was on. a beautiful i still watch the original show though it's just it's a little campy now like 10 years later like the graphics <laughs> are a little bad and i'm like we zoom into this eclipse and i'm like ooh. <laughs> but still ooh. save the cheerleader save the world were you uh, satisfied even though the, the show was canceled because for me when the show got canceled it still felt like Okay, I'm fine with her exposing herself to the world of like, this is who I, was I am. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I was okay with that ending. I I could definitely see how they had like plans to make it like more and the ramifications of the heroes being brought mm -hmm. because I thought we saw that future where like heroes existed in the normal society, but like some were being hunted. I could definitely see that was the way it was going, and I was fine with the exposure. It felt like a good place to end it, but I know that wasn't the plan. We just had the writer strike, which was incredibly yeah. unfortunate. So yeah. So what was the other question? Oh, oh, you do. oh your second yes, question. Yes, my second question. Since you're a Slytherin, which is your favorite Slytherin character? I can't remember his first name because I don't consume Harry Potter literature as much as I used to because J.K. Rollins has decided to jump off the deep end. Yes, uh, Blake Zabini, the black boy. Oh, yes. Because, like, he's the only one. He's the only, only black chick. <laughs> we have Dean Thomas. But, like, there's two. It's all we have. And yes, if I'm, I'm going to go with the one who was a Slytherin. Yes. I'm a Hufflepuff, just so you know. Um, that weirdo. That's unfortunate. It's okay. <laughs> See? He is a Slytherin. He is a Slytherin. <laughs> I, I am damned. I was put into a box and was thrown into the water. <laughs> to drown and not to be saved ever again. <laughs> so, going back to your top five books that are coming out that are coming your people that you are you are excited about that their books are coming out or your if you want to give us your top five or both you, or both whatever this is a hard question um because i have so many writer friends so i have to like pick the ones who are pick so, your favorites we I won't know, tell nobody would know like no okay, so Leah Johnson's new book, obviously. I stand Leah Johnson. It's going to be in every interview. I'm sorry. <laughs> One of my favorite writing people ever. Leah Johnson has a new book coming out. Uh, Jason June has a new book called um, Such a Gay Agenda, I believe. Mm -hmm. I don't remember remembers people's titles of books, and I apologize for any friends who tell me that. Um, there's another book by Johnny Vila. Vila. I do not know how to pronounce his last name. You see, when you make people online for the first time and you don't meet them in person, you never remember how to pronounce their name because you haven't <laughs> met it yet. But his book is called 1,500 Miles from the Sun. 15,000, 15 million miles from the sun. It is a beautiful coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely beautiful. Jay Coles has a new book coming out, which is about a bisexual black boy, which how mm -hmm. often do we have like bisexual rep mm -hmm. in books, like navigating contemporary stories? And then Ryan Lasala's new book, The Honeys, which is very much, and I have to make sure I don't pitch it in things that he didn't say online, but it has like a very... Uh, Scream Queen's gothic-esque element set in the Catskills, and it's wow. amazing. How did you meet your writer friends? I How spend did... too much time online. Exactly. <laughs> 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 <I spend, laughs> so my job is in social media, so I have to be online, literally. I get up at 8.30 in the morning, and I'm online for work or for pleasure until 2 a.m. So I am online for literally 18 hours in a day. And More I've been in you. the Twitter writing space for about, since 2013. And so a lot of friends I met through there. I lived in New York for two and a half years. I now live in New Jersey. And so part of the reason why I moved to New York was part for my job, part for my boyfriend, and also because it's where the writing scene is. And it was mm -hmm. just a great experience for me. And 
all of these hot takes that you hear on here, I publish online and it's a great way to meet people because people love to come at you when you do hot takes. And so I have a lot of friends who have come to me like, this is the dumbest take I've ever said, or a lot of people who like agree with me and we have become friends because people do not agree with our takes. <laughs> well, we are um, overjoyed that you decided that you would come and grace your presence with us um, well, thank this you for evening. Having me. It was amazing. It is amazing to have you here and we wish you much luck with all your future endeavors. We can't wait to read and watch, watch. everything. Fingers watch. crossed. <laughs> so until then, we bid you adieu. Thank you and thank you, you have thank a great, you so much. great evening. Thank you. You too and have a great weekend. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks bye. again. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.